Evening, everyone. Uh, I want to start with where we're going to finish in about 20 minutes uh, with the last slide that I'm going to show and use later on. And it's this, that our God is the God that we have been singing to, singing about, praying to, remembering, considering. Our God is a mysterious, incomparable, faithful, uncontainable, immense or majestic, accessible, listening, forgiving God. And if you hear, as I often say, if you hear nothing else or write nothing else down, just take those away with you. This morning we, uh, we started Solomon's story. And after succeeding David, his dad, to the throne, we discovered how he ruthlessly went about consolidating his power and securing his kingdom. And as a result, it actually paved the way for Solomon to do something that his dad didn't or couldn't do. David always had it in his heart to build a house for God. But for a whole variety of reasons, he wasn't able to do it. And Solomon picked up the project. And in in 1 Kings chapter 5, Solomon actually declares his intention to build. And the truth is that back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had actually told David, listen David, it's going to be one of your sons who will build a temple. You won't do it. And the contract period for the temple was 84 months. It took seven years to build. And the structure and the fixtures and the fittings were clearly impressive. And you can read all about the dimensions and the layout and the furnishings in 1 Kings chapter 6 and 7. Just to give you a a sense of how striking this place was. Apparently, the amount of gold that was used in that temple is estimated to have been about 3,000 tons. And that is more than the current annual production of gold, which in 2007 stood at 2,444 tons. So this was some place. And in chapter 8, which is where we're going to look at this evening, it's time to cut the ribbon. It's time to open the doors and celebrate. And Solomon invites everyone to the opening ceremony. And the first task involves the relocation of the Ark of the Lord or the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, It's on page 344 of the Bibles that are in the pews. And if you do have a copy of God's Word handy, it would be really, really good so we can refer to it from time to time. It's a long chapter, so we're not going to read all of it, but we're going to dip in at various points. And just before this Ark of the Lord is carried into the temple, there is what can only be described as a mass sacrifice. And if you look at verse 5, it actually says that there were so many sheep and cattle sacrificed that they could not be recorded or counted. Now then, if you flick over to verse 63, you'll notice that at the actual point of dedication, it says 22,000 cattle and 22,000 sheep and goats were sacrificed. Right? So in verse 5, there were so many that couldn't count, but they could count 44,000 later on. So in verse 5, there were more than 44,000 sacrifices. 
You can only imagine the scene, the amount of people, the blood, the smell, the sense of occasion. And it says that the priests took the altar or took the ark into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place. Now look at verse 9 because it actually says that there was nothing in the ark apart from two stone tablets which Moses had placed there at Horeb. And we'll come back to those in a minute. And after relocating the ark in the temple, the priests step out, they retreat, they withdraw. And then it happens. Something very powerful and very dramatic says the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Again, I want you to really try as far as possible to imagine this. A visible cloud invades the structure signifying the actual presence of Almighty God. God is here. Now if you've trouble imagining that scene a moment ago, to try and get your head around what that must have been like, I think is really difficult. And I want us to look at this in a wee bit of detail because for me, there's a really surprising dimension I came across during the week. Many of you have probably recognized it before, but it sort of struck me afresh this week as I prepared for tonight. You see, whenever I think of the glory of the Lord filling the temple, I think bright. Extremely bright. I think light. That you would have to cover your eyes because of the glare. And yet, look at verse 12. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. Or in another translation, and you may have this translation, it says that the Lord had said that he would dwell in thick darkness. Now that changes the picture. That's not how I imagined it. Surely this must have created an element of apprehension, of fear, a sense of the unknown, this dark, thick dark cloud and what you confront here is the fact of the reality that the cloud revealed but the cloud also concealed in other words it both displays God's glory and splendor and it hides it God is tangibly present but there is still this profound sense of mystery And there is a certain hiddenness about God. And that reminds us of something that really needs to stand as an eternal reminder. That there is so much we cannot see. And there is so much we do not know about God. And that is okay. In fact, it's entirely appropriate. Because that perspective, that recognition saves us from reducing God down to something that we can fully explain. It actually saves us from becoming over-familiar with God. 
of always trying to rationalize God. Our finite minds cannot fully comprehend the infinite. And it is that perspective that for me retains fear. A proper fear of God. And it inspires awe and it inspires wonder. A.W. Tozer once said this. We cover our deep ignorance with words. In other words, we're always trying to explain. But we are ashamed to wonder. We are afraid to whisper mystery. Don't be. Don't be. The cloud reveals God is there. God is with them. But the dark cloud, this thick darkness, also conceals. God is altogether distinctively different other than apart from. He is mysterious. But look at verse 9 because it would be dangerous to think or conclude that nothing is clear about God and everything is hidden, that the people were somehow left in the dark regarding how to live with God and how to live before God. Now within the ark that was central to this temple were these two stone tablets, which it says Moses had placed there at Horeb, where God had made a covenant with the Israelites when they came out of Egypt and inscribed on those two tablets, as we know, were the covenant stipulations, the ten words the Ten Commandments. You see, God has made his word clear and his will obvious to people. And so alongside mystery, there's clarity. And one commentator reflecting on this verse puts it like this, the cloud points to Yahweh's obscurity, the ark to his clarity. The former suggests that we cannot know God exhaustively, though the latter testifies that we we can know him adequately. To know there may be so much we do not know about God, and that keeps us humble. That guards our worship from becoming dull, or at least it should, from becoming routine, that I know this God. I know all there is to know about this God. The danger is then our our worship becomes predictable. Mike Iaconelli once said, the most critical issue facing Christians is not abortion, pornography, the disintegration of family, moral absolutes, MTV, it's written a while ago, drugs, racism, sexuality. The critical issue today is dullness. We have lost our astonishment. An appreciation of the mystery and the obscurity and the hiddenness of God guards against that. Think dark cloud. But his word and his will for our lives is crystal clear. Think stone tablets. Now let me explain this a bit further because some Christians really struggle with the idea of the will of God for their lives. They immediately think, does God want me to be a teacher, a doctor, a journalist, a full-time mum? Does God want me to study here or study there? Who does God want me to marry? Those are the sort of questions. And people can get tied up in not making these decisions, scared to do the wrong thing, scared to make the wrong choice in case they step outside of God's will. And lots of people end up stressed out 
about the issue of discovering God's will for their lives. Relatively speaking, relatively speaking, and I know so much more needs to be said, and if you want to read more and know more about this, please speak to me afterwards. I'll recommend a couple of good books. Relatively speaking, I don't think God is that hung up on whether you teach kids or design buildings, whether you attend that uni or enroll in the college down the street, whether you pursue that career or a different one. But I am sure that God cares intensely that whatever you are, wherever you are, and whoever you're with, that you don't worship other gods, that you do not commit adultery, that you speak truth, that you do not covet, that you honour your parents, etc., etc. That, if you like, is God's central will for our lives. And in terms of godly living, he has given us all the direction that we need. The ten, as we discovered last autumn, retain their relevance for our lives in the 21st century. And in addition to to those, we, unlike the Israelites in this time and place, also have the rest of God's essential word that keeps us centered on God's will for our lives. But back to the story. So the ark is in. God is visibly, tangibly, mysteriously present. And in a sense, now the worship can begin. And Solomon addresses the whole assembly. And he begins with a phrase which is the only appropriate phrase given what has just happened. Look at verse 15. He just says, praise be to the Lord. And in the rest of his initial address to the people, although it spills into his subsequent prayer, he celebrates a core aspect of God that we have discovered and that has been revealed to us at various points through this journey. And actually, Alison, as she led us in her praise this morning, referred to this. And this is something Solomon rejoices in. That God keeps his promises. That what God says God does, that God is true to his word, that God is faithful. And it is a recognition of this that fuels the opening words of Solomon's prayer. Look at verse 23. Lord, the God of Israel, there's no one like you in heaven above or on earth below. In other words, God, you are incomparable. And why is Solomon able to say that? Well, according to Solomon, the reason he believes God's incomparable is because he is a promise-keeping God. And as we've said before, it is that reality about God that inspires hope, or it should. That as we read these stories, as we continue on this journey through God's word, and as we encounter the faithfulness of God time and time again, we can increasingly become confident that the promises of God are reliable. But whatever God has said will happen. According to one person, there are 7,959 promises in Scripture made by God. Now, I don't know if that's true. I have never counted them. But if you work it out like this, if you were to read one promise of God every day, it would take you 22 years to work your way through them. And my advice is this, that as you engage with God's word, that you actually get into this habit of noting down, underlining whatever works for you, 
the promises of God that you come across. And so, in light of God's fidelity, in light of his trustworthiness in the past, Solomon knows, listen, I can rest on these promises that God has given. And we can rest on the promises of God and find hope from them. And Solomon rejoiced in them, and he drew attention to them, and he gave thanks for a God who keeps his promises. God's to-date fidelity breeds future expectancy. God, you've been so good to date. You've stuck to your word. And therefore, as I engage with your word and read it, I know that I can trust you to come through on all your promises. So take one example. The God who started a good work in you is going to carry it on to completion. And there may be times when you wonder, what is going on in my life? What is God doing? Well, actually, there's a promise that says, do you know something? If God has started a work in your life, he'll see it through. And you may be sitting here tonight and saying, I'm not sure I believe that. Well, part of what is involved in being a Christian disciple is recognizing that God has promised so much, come through in his word, and therefore you can trust him for the future. Solomon's prayer continues in verses 27 to 30. And if God is incomparable, Solomon quickly goes on to declare that he's also uncontainable. In verse 13, Solomon had actually said that he had built a place for God to dwell forever. But in verse 27, he, as he prays, he experiences something of a reality check because he then realizes, you know something, you cannot box God. Not even, Solomon says, the heavens can contain you. And what we discover is that God is not and never can be limited by our structures. Solomon knows that, and yet the tendency constantly exists to try to restrict God, contain him, enclose him, package him. If not in physical structures, then definitely in our thinking. God is uncontainable. He's always bigger than. He's always greater than. God always bursts our categories and frustrates all our attempts to surround his majesty. God is immense. He is always God of the universe, never God of the box. But what is so striking about Solomon's prayer as it continues is that having acknowledged God's immensity, he quickly follows that up by reminding us of God's intimacy. You can talk to this God, he says. You can cry out to him. Look at verse 28. In other words, God is above and beyond, yet he's next to. He's close. He is transcendent, to use a technical term, and yet he's available. There's distance, yet there's proximity. He's far off, yet He's right beside you. The mysterious, incomparable, uncontainable God is accessible. And as we've mentioned on a number of occasions, there is this idea of fear and friendship. There's got to be. Trembling and joy. 
And even at the time when we work through the Lord's Prayer, that prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples, it starts with this tension. Our Father, there's the intimacy, there's the friendship, there's the relationship, but how does it go on? Hallowed be your name. Holiness, reverence, awe. And in our worship, which, is Roy, which Roy has said is, is not just our singing, it's not even just what we do here this evening and every Sunday, although it's a key part of it. In our worship, which actually should be the way we live our lives, we've got to retain this balance. A fear of God. Friendship. Authentic worship results in a deeper fear of God. And authentic worship stems from a deep sense of friendship with God. And here in 1 Kings 8, Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple highlights both aspects. God's majesty dwarfs our universe, and yet his ear receives our prayers. Fear. Friendship. And I love this comment I came across during the week. Solomon teaches us that transcendence does not destroy intimacy, though it does give intimacy goosebumps. And in the next section of Solomon's prayer, there's this long list, and I don't have time to read it, but there's just this long list of troubles that may come upon Israel. It runs from verses 31 right through to 53. And what Solomon does is he prays into situations where there is hassle between neighbors, where there's defeat at the hands of enemies, where there's drought, where there's famine, where there's discomfort, where there's war, where there's a captivity. Solomon prays into all of these sort of situations. And some of the problems Solomon recognizes that the people of Israel are going to face, those are problems they've caused themselves. That as a result of their own choices and their own decisions, their own sin, that some of these things are going to be a consequence of their sin, but not all of them. But in virtually every situation, and please encourage you to take us away and read this, but in virtually every situation that Solomon prays into, he anticipates that the people will then engage in a number of practices. And for us, reading back into this, I do think there's an amazing example here to follow. There's not going to be anything new that I say here. But it does remind us how we should approach God in the midst of mess. In the midst of what we're going through. In the midst of trouble. As I say, trouble that you've brought on yourself. And trouble that is through no fault of your own. Here's what Solomon hopes and anticipates the people will do. That they will come to God. They'll return to God. They'll pray to God. They'll praise God. They'll turn from their sin. They'll plead with God. They'll repent. All of those are in that section. And whatever you're going through at the moment, and for whatever reason, there is wisdom here regarding a core way you should always respond that underpinning every other action, reaction, and response is always a reference to God. Well, it's coming back to God, praying to God, praising God, repenting, pleading. And as Solomon prays, he then says, this is what I anticipate the people will do, but God, there are two things I expect you to do, or I want you to do, or I realize you will do. That God, 
is going to hear and is going to forgive. That he's going to be attentive to them and that he's going to forgive them. And surely that reflects the longing and desire of many of us here this evening. That God would remain ready to listen to us. And that God would be prepared to restore us to right relationship with him in the midst of all we go through and in the midst of the poor choices that as we thought about last week, we will inevitably make. Now tonight's title, if you were following the E100 uh, readings for this chapter, is The Heart of Worship. And you may have thought, well, what we have just gone through there hasn't really been a sermon as such about worship. And yet what I hope it has been is a sermon about the nature and the character of God. Because you see, whenever your concept of God, your appreciation of God is increased and refreshed, then the natural response is worship. That whenever you get a fresh vision of God, whenever you read a chapter like this and you discover that our God is mysterious, incomparable, faithful, uncontainable, immense, accessible, listening and forgiving, then you reach that place where you're lost in wonder, love and praise. And that's what I hope we will go away from here this evening and reflect on. That we will come back to the heart of worship, which is all about what? It is all about you. It's all about you, God. It's all about you, Jesus. It's all about who you are, which is how Roy prayed as we started this service. And so as we close, let's sing. When the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come longing to bring you something that's of worth that will bless his heart that we will actually bring him more than a song for a song in itself is not what he has required he searches much deeper within always through the way things appear because he's looking into our hearts and let's come back to the heart of worship and say it is all about who God is